If you have your Bibles, let's open them. We're going to Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. Mark 15, 1 through 20. And you may say, well, that's where we were last week. Indeed it is. Rob and I decided we would take Mark 15, this first day of Good Friday, and we would run through it twice, in a sense. We'd cover it two times. Uh, he went 1 through 15. I'm actually going to go 1 through 20. And uh, you'll recall that Rob took us and, and, and uh, put a con- looked at the contrast between uh, Pilate and Barabbas on the one hand and Jesus on the other and said, let's look at, let's look at how they used power and, and um, authority uh, and, and, and how it affected them. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick up on the same themes, but we're going to go through it again. And I want us to focus on Jesus. And, and what I want us to do is take the same passage Look at Jesus Christ and his response to these events. And uh, what we're going to respond is, what we're going to find is, I think how Jesus responds, if we can tap into that to, honestly, it's a, it's a dark day to the difficulties, the challenges. Um, uh, if, if we can tap into how he responded, I guess what I'm getting to, then I think we begin to get an idea how we respond to the same things in our day. There's an African proverb that says, whatever fills a man will spill out when you bump him. Think about it. Whatever fills a person will spill out when you bump him. Uh, what spills out of you when, um, <clears throat> when you don't get the service that you expected at a restaurant, um, at the ticket counter, at the airport? What, what spills out of you? I'm one of those guys. I cannot tell you the times I've embarrassed my kids and my wife at a restaurant when something wasn't right. And I just, I'm thinking, I'm getting ready to spend all this money, and, and it just becomes very, very ugly. What spills out of you? Have you ever tried to um, change your cell phone carrier or figure out your bill or deal with your internet service? In person or on the phone? What spills out of you when, that, when you're interacting in that way? Uh, how about the bump of a medical diagnosis that you did not expect, or a bill that comes and it surprises you and you cannot pay it? How about the bump of a promise that someone made you and they're not going to follow through on their promise? Or the bump of a relationship that you cannot fix? How about the bump of a no thank you when you thought you had the job? Or the ultimate bump of life, death. Is death ever convenient, timely, welcomed? When it strikes, what spills out of us? What spills out of us when life bumps us is what fills us, which leads me to this conclusion. I think the scripture will affirm it, that our responses, you all, to life are a more accurate reflection of our hearts than our activities in life. Let me say it another way, that... that, um, Our responses, when we don't get what we want, when we don't get what we hope for, 
or when something happens that we don't agree with are a more accurate reflection of our hearts than when life is going exactly as we think it should. That you can be living life, it's when you bump into something, what spills out of you, that's what's in your heart. Not necessarily what's been going on all the way up to that bump. I'm going to tell you something. The disciples get bumped today. This is Good Friday. And they get bumped in ways they never imagined nor hoped. And here's what we know. What spills out of them is what's been there all along. What's been there all along. And it spills out when they get bumped on this day. And what is it? Well, they scatter. They leave. They deny Jesus and leave the Savior on his own in his hour of greatest need. It was there all along. And Jesus himself will be bumped on this day in a way he's never been bumped. You understand, by the end of this day, we're not going to get there now, but by the end of this day, he will be on a cross dying. And what spills out of him when death bumps him this way? I'm going to tell you something. It's been there all along. And what spills out of him, I believe this, is the answer to our greatest need and the fulfillment of our deepest hope. That's what's going to come out of him. And my prayer this week for us has been that through the text itself, we would get so close to Christ that the Spirit would drench us with what's spilling out of Christ. That's my prayer for us this Lord's Day. I'm going to take it in three parts. 15, 1 to 20 looks like this. Jesus before Pilate. Jesus for, before uh, the crowd, and then Jesus before Barabbas. Okay, so that's how we'll do it. It's, again, picking up from where Rob was last week. Jesus before Pilate, that's verses 1 to 5. Jesus before the crowd, verses 6 to 15. Jesus before the soldiers, 16 to 21. Follow along once again in your Bibles, verses 1 through 5. Jesus before Pilate. Early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation. And binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Pilate questioned him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, it is as you say. The chief priests began to accuse him harshly. That word harshly is literally more and more. So they began to accuse him More and more and more and more and more. Verse 4, then Pilate questioned him again saying, do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. Y'all, as the sun is rising on this day, Jesus Christ has endured an illegal trial. You understand that by Jewish law, It was illegal to have a trial at night. (laughs) It was against the law. And this council, by the way, and scribes and Pharisees, there are 70 men that make this up. This is the Supreme Court of Israel. Do you think that they know that what they did was illegal? Well, absolutely. I mean, they write the laws. They knew it was illegal. And so as the sun's rising, they think we've got to take care of this illegality. So what do they do? Come here, let's get together. The sun's up. Let's have a consultation. 
So they're going to get around the nighttime illegal trial by this brief consultation as they're gathered, covering their tracks. But they've got another problem. Rob mentioned it. You know, Jesus has been charged with blasphemy. He claimed that he's the son of God. To profane the name of God is blasphemy. And that deserves death. But the Jews had no right to, to take someone's life. They, they couldn't do it. The power of the sword belonged to Rome. And so they've got to get Rome to kill Jesus to fulfill what their verdict has been. And so what do they do in the consultation? Well, they've charged him with blasphemy in the nighttime illegal trial. In the consultation that morning under the legality of sunrise, they changed the charge. Rather than charging him with blasphemy, which is a religious charge, and we know from other texts that Pilate would say, that's a religious problem, y'all deal with it. They change it and say, we're going to charge him with treason. Now, treason is a, is a crime against the state. And indeed, they come with this charge, and we know they've changed the charge. How? By the first question Pilate asked. You notice Pilate didn't go, are, are, did, did you blaspheme your God? He didn't ask that. What did he ask? Are you what? Say it. Are you a king? See, if, if Jesus is a king, then Pilate's got a problem. Because in, in Roman rule, there's only one ruler, one king, one sovereign, and that is Caesar. And then Jesus' answer. How about this one? It is as you say. Now, we teach from the New American Standard Bible. It's what I've got here. And in my New American Standard, I don't know what you're studying. If there are words in italics, it tells you that those words are not in the original Greek manuscript. So when he, when he says, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, it, it, it is as are italics in my Bible, which tells me that, that those words aren't in the Greek. And in fact, they're not. Jesus' answer is two Greek words, ou Are you the king of the Jews? Ou You say. That's his answer. You go, oh my gosh, what, what, what kind of answer is that? Well, it's clear. It, you say. It, 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 and the other gospels affirm this. It's yes. Yes, you say it. What you just said is true. But doesn't it leave room for interpretation? Doesn't it leave room for... And, and it does leave room... In this way, as we'll pick up at the back end, that the kingdom, here's the key, the kingdom that, that the Jews are saying, he, you know, you know he's, he, that he's saying he's the kingdom of, is not what the Jews are talking about. We've got a difference here, and this is going to be really important when you apply the text, even as Rob talked about last week. I'm going to come back to that at the end. Mark, what, what he's doing here is he's given us this picture of this waterfall of words. Many, 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 many words, charges, charges, charges. Come to, it's like... And he's contrasting that with there's not a trickle of sound from Jesus. This is, this is the contrast we feel, we see. And his silence. Well, it's just deafening, right? This is, it's so true in this context. And it's so true because his silence will lead to his death. It's one thing to be quiet because, you know, you think you're right. And you're not gonna, but if you, know, if you know that your quietness, your silence is going to lead to your death, oh, my goodness. And Pilate is amazed. And I think that's what he's amazed about. Not that he's just quiet, but that it might go something like this in Pilate's mind. This guy would rather remain silent and die than talk 
to me. Because <laughs> I, can, I can let him live. You, know, you know, see, Pilate's got this inflated view of his own power and authority. And we're going to look at that in a moment, too. I'm going to grab those two things at the back end of the message and talk again about how it affects us. Jesus' silence is deafening. And this is just, may I offer this for you to ponder for a minute. What spills out of you when people misunderstand you? When people say things about you that aren't true about you? When people assume things about you that aren't true? When, when you make a decision and people don't agree with that decision and they think they know what goes in that decision and they, what, what spills out of you when all that comes at you? Because whatever spills out of you, that's what's in you. That's what fills us. From Jesus before Pilate, let's grab Jesus before the crowd, verses 6 to 15. Now at the feast, he used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. The man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists. Insurrectionists are those who are committing treason. They're they're going to kick Rome out by the sword. Who had committed murder in the insurrection. Crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them, which is to release one of the prisoners. Pilate asked them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. Answering again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him whom you call king of the Jews? And they shouted back, Crucify him! Back in that is the Greek, they shouted again. So see, the crowd's going again and again and again. Crucify, crucify, crucify. But Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? Rob said it last week. There's the declaration of innocence by Rome. He's innocent. But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Now, Mark's gospel is very terse. We all know this. We've been in it for months. He doesn't include all the details, but what he includes is absolutely purposeful. And I just want to grab this one point from this middle section, Jesus before the crowd, and that is that Mark is giving us a vivid contrast, a vivid contrast. And one of the one I want you to see is this. Do you know Barabbas, Barabbas, Bar, son of Abba, son of the father, Bar Abbas. Son of the father, Barabbas, uh, is, has tried to rid Israel of their bondage, their bondage to Rome. And he picked up the sword and he fought to free them. And he's guilty of murder and treason, Bar Abbas. Jesus son of the father, has been charged with treason, but he's not guilty of treason at all. Jesus, son of the father, has come to set Israel free from their deepest, most fundamental problem, and it's not Rome, (laughs) free from their bondage to sin. And he will not do it with a sword. He will do it with a sacrifice and a resurrection. You see, do you see what he's showing us? The guilty 
goes free through no merit of their own. You tell me. Did, did Barabbas file an appeal? What did Barabbas do to set himself free? Say it. What did he do? Nothing. What does that remind us of? For then the innocent man dies for the guilt of the guilty. Do you see what Jesus is doing? Do you see what the story is telling us? Foreshadowing for us this amazing good news of the gospel. Jesus before Pilate, Jesus before Barabbas. Let me grab this last section, 16 through 20. We didn't hit it last week. Jesus before the soldiers. The soldiers took him away into the palace. That is the praetorium. They called together the whole Roman cohort. That would be 600 soldiers. So 600 soldiers. Why so many? Because it was the Passover and they needed to keep the peace. Need to keep the peace in Jerusalem. They dressed him up in purple. And after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews! They kept beating his head with a reed. See, they put a reed in his hand and made him sit there like a king in a scepter. And then they would come by and take the scepter out of his hand and whack him on the head. And spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. After they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off him and put his own garments on him. And they led him out to crucify him. Why the brutality? Here's what I just want us to think about for a moment. Why, why such brutality? Don't, I know this is, this is gross, but we're already in such gross and gruesome brutality. Why, you know, Jesus... Why didn't they just cut off his head? I, I don't mean to be gross, but why not just a quick death? Because he's, he's, listen, the wages of sin is, finish the sentence, the wages of sin is, it's not suffering. Go with me here. It's not, he's not paying the wages of sin yet because the wages of sin is death. He is suffering, you see. Why? Why does he have to go through that? Well, because it was prophesied, because it was God's purpose and plan, and God always has purpose and plans, and he has purpose and plans even in the suffering. And he's fulfilling what God has promised. Let me offer you two thoughts that I've got around why the suffering, beyond the fact that God had said it would be this way. The first one I want to suggest is this. It shows us the ugliness of sin. I mean, I'm telling you, we can go through life and, and sin is a, sin's a problem. Sin's kind of the dark spot. Hate it when I did that. Sin is so ugly, so evil and wrong that, that we kind of got some flesh around it right here. You see, sin doesn't just destroy, it demeans and then destroys. We don't, we, we're not, we don't quite grasp the reality that sin is so opposed to righteousness, to truth, to right, that it can't coexist with it. It will try to, it, it will seek to crush righteousness and good. It's, it's, it's brutally ugly. And if we think that our sin 
is not that brutal and ugly. If we think that those guys did something so horrendous, I can't believe they did it, I would never do that, that's when our naivete shows up. And if you think that's not in you, you're, you're wrong. I just, I'm going to tell you, it's in all of us. And had we been in the cohort, our spit would be on the Savior. And even today, in our flesh, sin resides in, our, in, our, in the principle of the flesh. Listen, we still spit on Jesus. No, I would never spit on... It's just sin. <laughs> it's sin. And it's dark and it's ugly. Here's a second reason I believe that Jesus endured the suffering is this. Jesus shows us the certainty of suffering. Why would he go through that? To show us the certainty of suffering for all who would follow him. You know, when we study the Bible this way, we always go into its historical context and we want to know what did the author intend the original readers to understand? See, that's where you start with interpretation. Men and women, when the Roman readers of this gospel were reading this, many of them were being treated just like Jesus. This was under Nero. So they would read this, you see, and they would have a brother, a sister, a father, a friend, a a, a cousin, whatever, who literally died under that, was suffering under that, was mistreated under that. We got to understand this. What Jesus does here, as amazing as it is, please know this. Do you know 30,000, they estimate, 30,000 people were crucified and treated like this in Jesus' day. So on the one hand, what Jesus is doing, other men have done. And you know what I'm saying? It's amazing, but other people have gone through this. None of them went through it sinless. But you tell me, 30,000, do you think any of those crucified were truly innocent? I mean, in our own judicial system now, we kill innocent people, don't we? Do you think so? Yes. But Jesus is enduring this to to show those who are going to read this letter and, and us, you see, down the road, that suffering is inevitable... If you are going to follow the servant king and especially for those in the day reading this as they suffered and many died, they can look at this and go, my savior walked this path and death did not overcome him. He overcame death and so will I and so did my dad and so did my uncle. And so did my aunt. Do you see that? And he shows us this through his own suffering. Well, I look at this text. You know, we go through it every Easter and we kind of go through these things. I want to I I move us toward application in this way. Um, the scenes are pretty familiar, but the question I have is how did Jesus endure this as a man? This is going to pick up where, where Rob, Rob left us off. How did Jesus endure it as a man? Because I want, I want us to think for a moment. Don't, don't ever forget that Jesus was fully God. He was fully man, as inseparable, but fully man means fully man. And that he, he endured this. You know, uh, Philippians talks about he, 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 he didn't count himself to, to consider it to be equal with God, but put aside those attributes to be a man to suffer, you see. So he suffered as a man. And so if we can tap into how did, how did Jesus, the man, move through this in such a way that what 
spilled out of him was not what would spill out of me, which would be defensiveness, (laughs) anger, and by golly, I would have called the 12 legions of angels. Enough, you know, you know I'm, I'm being serious in our flesh. How did Jesus not do that for when we get it, how he did, I think we get how we do the same. Here's what I want you to do. Flip over in your Bibles to the right and go to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, you know, every, every uh, gospel includes this account of Jesus before Pilate. And we pick up some details and we pick up two really important details in this section. I'm going to look at two things. Pilate is amazed. I mean, I can't believe this guy's not saying anything to defend himself. And I want you to notice the responses here in verses 36 and following. John chapter 18. And we're going to start in verse 36. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But that is it, as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. I want you to stop right there. How did Jesus endure? Well, this life was not the life Jesus was living for. Let me say it this way. Jesus was living for another kingdom. Y'all, that is freighted with significance. Not the kingdom of Barabbas, not the kingdom of Pilate, not the kingdom of Rome, not the kingdom of the crowd, not the kingdom of the religious leaders. Jesus was living for another kingdom. Now slide your eyes over to chapter 19, and I want you to pick up verses 10 and 11. Again, Pilate's got this inflated, exaggerated view of his own importance, power, and authority. And notice this interaction. Verse 10. So Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and I have the authority to crucify you? And I don't doubt that Pilate said it like that. Do you understand who you're talking to? Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Jesus is living for another kingdom, and Jesus is living under another authority. He's living under the authority of the kingdom for which he is living. God alone is authoritative, men and women. God alone holds all authority, all authority. And Paul, as he explains this in Romans, will say it this way, Romans 13.1, for there is no authority except from God and those which are established by God. God alone is authoritative and Every authority on the planet Earth is derived authority from God. Every authority on the planet. There is no authority structure, no authority in a person that is not delegated by God. And Jesus, because he's living for another kingdom... And he's living under the authority of that kingdom, trusts 
that his father, this is what's amazing, is going to use, watch this, unjust, evil, and imperfect authority to achieve, this is amazing, his just and good and perfect purpose and plan. And so you and I, hear me on this, we live on a planet where we live under authorities. And the scripture has established authority relationships, y'all, that goes all the way down to a man and a woman in marriage. And parents in a home. This is just the way God has established and structured the world. And in the church, there's a story structure of, 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 of plurality of elders under the headship of Christ. And when you walk out those doors, there will be a policeman at that light. And he has authority by the, by the government of Franklin. And, and when they have authority, under, you see, it just goes on and on and on. There's no piece of that authority structure that isn't from God. How do you respond to it in your life, in mine? This even when it's wrong, even when it's unjust, you see, even when it's imperfect, we're answering, asking this question, how is it that Jesus could be bumped by such cruelty, injustice, misunderstanding, and not spill out a toxic brew? He was living for another kingdom and he was living under that kingdom's authority. And the question is, this is where we go, how do we apply this text? What about you and me? I mean, what about us? We've got to ask, what, am I living for another kingdom and I, am I living under that kingdom's authority? And y'all, I can stand up here all day long and tell you I am. Yes, I am. I'm living for the kingdom of heaven and, and I live under the authority, the, the, the authority of that kingdom. I can tell you that all day long, Okay. But I'm going to tell you something. Until life bumps me and you see what spills out, I could be lying. I could be lying to myself. I don't care what you tell me. You tell me, Lloyd, I'm living for the kingdom and I'm living under... I go fabulous. And I want to watch you long enough to see when life bumps you, what spills out of you. Because that's the answer. Does that make sense? That's the answer more than my words. That, I feel that. And I, I believe that's true. I want you to close your Bibles. Close your Bibles. And let's, let's talk about engaging the text. Let's talk about getting close enough to Jesus that what spills out of him drenches us. I mentioned to you all um, months ago that Lisa and I took the trip of a lifetime, truly, truly the trip of a lifetime with our, our two girls, uh, Susan and Sally. We took them to Europe over spring break because their brother, Darden, 
was in uh, Sevilla, Spain for the semester, and we just said, we're going. We, whatever it co- cost takes, we're going to sacrifice and get there. And we did. It was an amazing, amazing trip. We, uh, we went straight into London, three days there, three days in Paris, then three days south in Sevilla, Spain. Before going, I asked some of you, and, I, uh, and, and one person in particular, Susan McKinney, who had recently been on a trip like this with some ladies, I said, Susan, what are the can't-miss, don't-miss things? Because, you know, we got three days in these cities. And one of the first things she said was, Lloyd, you cannot miss visiting St. Chapelle. Some of you have been there, St. Chapelle. St. Chapelle means holy chapel. It's a, it's a chapel in, in Paris, right by Notre Dame. Um, it was commissioned by King Louis IX to house passion relics. That, that he, had the, he had the crown, so to speak. He had the crown that Jesus had on. So they're going to house him in St. Chapelle. Uh, it was finished in 1248. So that's crazy enough indeed to go see this building completed in 1248. Well, it turns out St. Chapelle was fi- a 15-minute walk from our Airbnb in uh, Paris, one of the first places we went. Now, over the years, the city has just grown up around this thing. And so St. Chapelle is, is there, but it's surrounded by government buildings. And it's, it's not very pretty, per se, in these government buildings, but then you've got to go through those things to get to St. Chapelle. Now, here is the view that we had as we approached on a cloudy, chilly, rainy day in March. This is us, you know, we're coming up to it, and that's St. Chapelle. And uh, when you look at it, it's a day just like this. It, 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 it was raining. Um, there are 15, 15 huge windows. And these windows, you all, are, are uh, almost 50 feet tall, okay, that surround St. Chapelle. And within those 15 windows, there are 1,113 separate stained glass depictions from Genesis to Revelation. So you literally start on one side of this church and you go around and it starts Genesis and it tells the story of the Bible in 1,113 stained glass windows. It is, don't want to miss it. It's amazing. But it's only breathtaking from inside St. Chapelle. So you can stand outside St. Chapelle all day and look at those stained glass windows. Do you look at those and go, wow, oh my gosh, this I don't know, they just look like dark blotches. You never see the beauty of St. Chapelle till you're in it, and the same is true when it comes to Jesus. Pilate stood outside of Jesus, and what did Pilate see standing outside of Jesus? He saw an amazing man. Wow, that guy is brave. He was amazed. It's not enough to be amazed. The crowd stood outside of Jesus and they saw a broken rabbi losing all he had lived for and they chose a criminal with a sword standing outside of Christ. And the soldiers themselves, they saw a fraud because they'd seen so many and they treated him like one. You can stand, you all, outside of Jesus And you will not experience the forgiveness of your sin. The cleansing of your sin and the clothing of his righteousness, which is the greatest need, period, on the planet. 
And you can stand outside of Christ and you will never experience the hope that does not disappoint, which is to be in a right relationship with the God who created you and to be in that relationship on the planet and forever. That's our greatest hope. And that's the hope that doesn't disappoint. Oh, you can stand outside of Christ and never get any of that. Here it is. It's only when you enter St. Chapelle that the beauty of St. Chapelle is yours. And it doesn't even have to be a sunny day. It doesn't. It wasn't a sunny day when we were there. It's only when you enter Christ, when you and I personally, you you personally put your trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. I believe, Jesus, that what you did, you did for me, and I believe it. That's it. That's, That's to enter Christ and Christ in you. And that's when you see grace that will undo you and change you the rest of your life. See, what spilled out of Jesus in the face of man's greatest cruelty was his blood. Hebrews tells us it's not the blood of bulls and goats, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. But it was, according to 1 Peter, precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Here's what's, here, here, you see, here's what spilled out of Jesus, okay? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what spilled out of him. Because that's what filled him. (laughs) You understand? That's what filled Christ in eternity past. It's what filled him on his days on this planet. It's what fills Christ today in this moment. It's who he is. It's all that he is. And Pilate couldn't see it. And the crowds missed it. And the soldiers missed it. And what what they didn't understand was that what they were doing to this man, this man Jesus was not a victim. He was not a victim of their cruelty. He was a savior who loved them even as they were beating him, spitting on him. He's no victim. He did this because he loved them. And endured it. The ugliness of this text is replaced by the beauty of the gospel, you see, when we're in Christ, when he's in us. You know, I'm quoting Keller loosely when I say this. If you look at Christ's response and you look at it And you say, there's an example to follow. Let me tell you what's going to happen. He's going to crush you. Because you you can't respond like that. (laughs) And if you try, it will, Jesus as an example, as Keller says, will crush you. He will crush you. But Jesus as a savior, save you. (laughs) And that's what he is. He's a savior. Well, Pilate asked the question we must all face, didn't he, back in verse 21. What shall I do with Jesus? That's the question. What will you do with Jesus? Seriously. I'm going over. I know I'm going over time. But... What you got to ask, you got to answer it. What will you do with Jesus? 
And, and I've got to believe that there, some of you in the room, there's someone in the room who's never placed their faith in Christ. What are you going to do with Jesus? And if, if God has said anything this morning to you, and, and there's any inclination in you to go, I, I think I want to believe Christ, trust me, it's not because of what I said. It's because God is at work in your life. And you can trust Jesus right now. You can say, Jesus, I believe what you did, you did for me. And you go, you might say, Lloyd, I don't have all the answers. I'm not all, well, you'll never have all the answers. And I don't have all the answers. But if you're on the precipice of that, that's God inviting you to step in. And you'll begin to see the wonders of his grace. So if you don't know Christ, believe him today. Now, in the room, I know, Many, if not most, that know Christ. But let me ask you this. Are you resting in the wonder of his grace? Because life has a way of clouding the pains, of hiding the goodness of Christ. And maybe this morning you just need to sit here in Christ and go, God, oh God, where must I, where you invite me to repent of something? Where you, Take the scales from my eyes. I want to rest in your grace and wonder that what you did, you did for me, and that's the good news. It's not what I can do for you. It's all you've done for me. And you said in that, and that grace changes you. And I'm going to invite you to do that now. Bow your heads and have a conversation with God just for a moment, and then I'll dismiss us. Let's stand together. Stand up, would you please? And I want to send us out with... A wonderful reminder from the writer of Hebrews. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd. No, wait, I'm in the wrong, I'm in the wrong spot. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Do not grow weary. Do not lose heart. And rest in the goodness of God's grace in Christ. Amen. If you want someone to pray with you, make your way up here because we want to pray with you this morning. You are dismissed.